Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. I'm not sure about all of you, but for many people and for some of you, I know that uh, this past week has been pretty tumultuous, uh, aside from the many personal challenges you may have encountered. There were certainly some things on a much larger scale that unfolded in the past several days that may have given you quite a a ride on the proverbial emotional roller coaster, an an ongoing uh, weather-related crisis in the Northeast, a a volatile stock market, a fiscal cliff, the resignation of the head of the CIA, and of course a significant national election that will greatly impact the future direction of our country. A couple of people on Wednesday asked me, did your guy get elected? Well, if I would have been quick on my feet, I I would have answered, yes, as a matter of fact, he did. And I understand that the majority of people don't like him, but every one of his policies are good, and every promise he has made, he will keep. Obviously, I'm not talking about Obama or Romney. I'm talking about the grand subject of Psalm 2, King Jesus. Along with Psalm 1, Psalm 2 stands at the front of this great collection of Hebrew songs and poetry as if to say, if you don't grasp the truths of this psalm, you will gain very little from the ones that follow. Not only is its placement at the beginning of the book of Psalms significant, but it is also important to note that portions of Psalm 2 are either quoted or alluded to in at least 18 different places in the New Testament. Four direct quotes, uh, at the minimum 14 different allusions. We also know that this particular psalm was penned by King David, not because of there's a, a superscript that tells us that, but mainly because in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, the Apostle Peter says that David is the author. Most likely David wrote this psalm during his 40-year reign as the king of the nation of Israel. One more thing that we need to recognize that will help us to properly interpret interpret this psalm, and that is this, that Psalm 2 is clearly a messianic and a prophetic psalm. In other words, this psalm is not about the lesser David, it is about the greater David. It was written by King David, but it was not about him or any other Davidic king, for that matter, that reigned in the, in the period of the Old Testament. It is about Jesus Christ, and we know this is true for several reasons, and I'll just give you these very, very quickly. One is that David was, we certainly know David as the sweet psalmist of Israel, but he is also identified as a prophet in Acts chapter 2, verse 30. Secondly, the phrase kings of the earth mentioned in verse 2, and we'll see this in just a moment, normally refers in Scripture to a global rule, not a regional rule, which would have been more characteristic of King King David's reign. Number three, the New Testament never quotes Psalm 2 historically or typologically, but always in direct reference to Christ. Number four, the term begotten in verse 7 is never used of David. Number number. Uh, excuse number four, number five, worship is ascribed to the Son in verse 12, which could only be accepted by God. Number six, the wrath of the one mentioned in verse 12 is equated to the Lord's wrath mentioned in verse five. 
And number seven, neither David nor Solomon exhausts the language of this psalm. There are simply too many things mentioned in this psalm that could not be attributed to a mere man, even if that man were a man after God's own heart. Now, let me read this psalm and and let us discover tonight hope not by looking down and not by looking around us, not by looking, certainly not by looking within us, but let us find hope by looking upward through the lens of Psalm 2 to our victorious King, the Lord Jesus. If you'll follow along there in verse 1. David writes, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those, all of those, who take refuge in him. Now this psalm breaks down very easily into four parts. Let me go ahead and give you, it's basically each of the parts are three verses. Verses 1 to 3, we'll look at the world's anarchy. Verses 4 to 6, the father's authority. Verses 7 to 9, the Son's appointment, and verses 10 to 12, the Spirit's appeal. Let's begin in those first three verses with the world's anarchy. Here we see the defiance of sinful men, the sinful hatred of humanity for God and His righteous rule. The psalm begins with a question, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing. The nations are, are tossing tumultuously like the waves of the sea. There, there is a, there's a great commotion. The ungodly are in an uproar. The King James says this, Why do the heathen rage? And why, David writes, are the peoples devising a vain thing? He says they are plotting. They are plotting, they are, they are conspiring, they are deliberating together. In fact, the Hebrew word translated devising in verse 1 is often translated elsewhere as the word meditate. It's the word it simply means to moan or to growl or to utter or to muse. Interestingly, it's the same word that we find back in Psalm chapter 1. In verse 1 it says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And there's our word. Psalm chapter 1 verse 2 tells us what desire is in the heart of the godly man, because what he meditates on reveals what he desires. 
And so we know that his desire is for the law of the Lord. His desire is for the precepts of God, his commands. What Psalm 1 doesn't tell us is what the wicked desire. It isn't until we get to Psalm 2 that we discover what is in the heart of the ungodly. What their desire is, what they really want. And we find this out by observing what they are meditating on. What is it that the nations are imagining? What is it that the nations are thinking about and plotting? Well, the general description is given to us at the end of verse 1. He says the psalmist calls this a vain thing, something that is worthless, something that is empty. And why does he say that it's vain? Well, he says it's vain because they are making plans that they have no ability to carry out. That's why it's vain. That's why it's empty. Sounds a lot like our politicians. Making plans with no ability to actually carry those things out. May even remind us sometimes of our children, right? Who make some of these plans. I get caught in this a lot as a, as a parent with my uh, teenagers. There's, there's plans being made. There's, there's plots. And yet, there's no money. And there's no transportation. You know, but they're, 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 they're piecing these things together. So he says, the, the, these plans of the ungodly are vain in that they're, they're, they're making plans, they're plotting things that they have no power to bring about. To the psalmist, the whole thing sounds absurd. Their plans are unwarranted. They themselves are impotent. And so he asks, why? Why are they doing this? It's an expression of, of astonishment. He's saying, how can they be so absurd? How can they be so insane? But this is the irony of man's depravity. It is an an irrational, blind rage. Reminds us of Romans chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul writes, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile or vain in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. David continues in verse 2, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. They take their stand against God. The ESV says they set themselves against Him. And they take counsel. They, They counsel together, meaning that they forge an alliance and establish a resolution against the Lord. What's so amazing about this is that under any other circumstances, these kings and these rulers would never agree to work together. In fact, it's interesting to note what Peter and John and their companions say in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 and following, after Peter and John were released from jail. They say, and when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? So he's referring back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 26. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, your Messiah, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So who came together? Well, he says these groups, Herod and Pilate, well, they were unlikely allies. Then he says there were the Jews and the Romans, again, unlikely allies. But they had something in common. They had a common love, sin, and they had a common hatred. They had a common enemy, and it was Jesus. In fact, Luke chapter 23, verse 12 says, And Herod with his soldiers, after treating Jesus with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And now, verse 12, Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. So, the nations and their rulers stand against the Lord. And what do they say, verse 3? Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The ESV says, let us burst their their bonds. The NIV says, let us break their chains. The King James says, let us break their bands asunder. Now, of course, we know that mankind is bound by many things. Unredeemed men are under the control of the evil one. We know this, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, John writes, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We also know that unredeemed men are under the bondage of sin. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 22 says, His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Again, we have this idea of of the slavery of sin in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3, says that all unbelievers are, quote, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. And so we know that mankind is bound by these things. Mankind is under the control of the evil one. All unbelievers are under the, the bondage of sin. And praise God, the Lord can deal with those chains. The Lord can deal with those kinds of cords. In fact, listen to, listen to this wonderful passage in Psalm 107, verse 10. He says, There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled, and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men, for he has shattered gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. So God can deal with those kinds of of bonds. But this kind of bondage is not what David is referring to in these opening verses of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, he is referring to the sovereign authority that God has over all men even kings. That that authority and that prerogative to turn the heart of the king wherever he desires 
according to Proverbs 21.1. That ability of Yahweh and His Messiah to restrain nations with the bonds of their sovereign power, even when nations and the peoples and the kings and the rulers act like wild donkeys. This is what they hate. This is what they want to break free from. And they are unwavering in their desire. Their pursuit of freedom consumes their thoughts and their minds and their hearts. And they employ their imagination to find ways to rid mankind of God. These first three verses are all about man's depravity. The world's anarchy. The world's lawlessness. The world's revolution. It's rebellion. The world's ridiculous attempt to gain autonomy. It reminds me of the parable Jesus told in Luke chapter 19. In verse 12, Jesus said, said this. He said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. It's all about mankind's sinful hatred for God and His Son and their authority. And this, of course, is the very essence of sin, right? A repudiation, a rejection of God's rule in favor of one's own will. This attitude is the attitude of every unbeliever. All you have to do is look at their actions and evaluate their their priorities. What do they spend their time doing? Where do they invest their resources? To what or to whom do they offer their praise? What do they criticize? What do they complain about? What or who are they afraid of losing? And when you get these answers... When you get the answers to those kinds of questions, you will find that what this lost world really wants, what it really desires, is to worship and to satisfy and to serve itself. Man's problem is a heart problem. He has a defiant heart, and therefore, he speaks words of defiance. Let us cast away their cords from us. Listen, don't ever get the impression that this is a passive thing. Our world actively hates God. And it's been that way since Genesis 3. The world's anarchy. Secondly, let's look at the father's beginning in verse 4, the father's authority. The father's authority. What if the whole world conspired against you? How would you react? Surprised? Nervous? Afraid? Helpless? Some of us experience this range of emotions when we think that just one person is out to get us. But notice the reaction of the father. Notice his response to this rebellion. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs... The Lord scoffs at them. 
God is not disquieted. God is not fearful. God is not panicky. Above the scene of this unbelievable arrogance and rising of the people of the earth against Jehovah and his Messiah is God enthroned in unapproachable majesty and ever abiding glory. Psalm 115 verse 2 says, Why should the nations say, Where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Listen, in our lives, mockery would normally intimidate us. But God is not afraid, nor is he intimidated. God has sovereign confidence, so much so that the psalmist says he laughs. We see this in other Places in the Psalms, Psalm chapter 37, verse 12, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. Psalm 59, verses 6 to 8, They, speaking of David's enemies, verse 6, return at evening. They howl like a, do- they howl like a dog and go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. For they say, who hears, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. And why does he laugh? Because from the standpoint of heaven, the rebellion of the nations is absolutely ludicrous. John Phillips says this, quote, As though man who has solved some of the subtleties of the atom and manage to scare himself half to death in the process, can compete with a God who stokes the nuclear fires of a billion stars. No wonder he that sits in the heavens simply laughs. Man, for all of his technology and talents, for all of his science and skill, for all of his inventions, is still man, mere mortal man. And God is God, eternal uncreated, self-existent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, infinite, infallible, holy, high, and lifted up and worshipped by countless angel throngs. End quote. Think about it. We have currently 195 sovereign nations across the world. And what does God think about the nations? What does God think about the countries of this world? Isaiah 40, verse 15 says this, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing. Whatever that is. (laughs) They're less than nothing and meaningless, vain, empty. And so God laughs at their puny efforts to defeat him. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. He will rebuke them for their insolence and their pride. God will confound them in the heat of his anger. He will disturb them with his words and bring great distress and trouble to their minds. He will upset and frustrate their plans. And how does he do this? With his own plans. 
plans so certain that he speaks of this prophecy in the past tense. Saying, verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Notice how the Father speaks with such divine authority. He does not call a conference. He does not seek counsel from his campaign staff. He does not seek some sort of middle ground or compromise. He doesn't take a poll. He doesn't negotiate either in strength or in weakness because he is sovereign. He is not one among many authorities. He possesses an exclusive authority that he does not share with anyone else outside of the Godhead. An authority that can never be successfully challenged and can never be rightfully overthrown. An authority that is permanent, unchanging, not relativistic. An authority that is not suggestive but obligatory. An authority that is eternally consequential. And with that authority, he declares, I myself, I have installed my king. Upon Zion, my holy mountain. I did this. It's my king. It's my mountain. The ESV says this, I have set my king upon Zion. And notice the irony. The very thing that unbelievers tried to prevent has already been accomplished. Like casting an object by making a mold and then pouring liquid metal into that mold, God has not only determined the position to be filled, but He's already filled the position with His one and only Son. And underlying all of this is the Davidic covenant. We don't have time to, to go there, but you could go to First Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, really there in verses 12 to 16 where we find this covenant that God made with King David is really really a promise by God to David that was both conditional and unconditional. It, it was a promise by God to David that if he and his descendants, his sons who succeeded him, were obedient, God would bless their kingdom. But if they did not obey, God would not bless their kingdom. That was the conditional part. But the Davidic covenant also contained an unconditional promise. A promise that one day there would be a king. One that would be fully obedient. Whose kingdom would be established and who would rule forever. A promise that clearly pointed to Jesus Christ who alone deserves in the ultimate sense, to be installed on God's holy mountain. And this leads us to the third idea in this psalm, the son's appointment. Beginning in verse 7, we hear from the one that God has appointed. The king mentioned in verse 6 now speaks in verse 7. And this is what he says, verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. 
I will recount God's decree. I will recount God's ordinance and His statute. Now, this this term decree is is not a a word that is synonymous with the Davidic covenant. But but it's really, throughout Scripture, a a term that is used in connection with the pre-creation or eternity past decrees of God. So this is what the Son is declaring. This is what He is saying. I will surely tell of this decree of the Lord. And what is that particular decree of Yahweh? He goes on, He said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Verse 8, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. What an amazing turn of events. The very people that rage and plot and stand against the Lord become the inheritance of the Son. And not only will the Son possess them, He will have full authority to judge them. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. This word for rod is the same word found in Psalm 23 verse 4 that refers to that short club that the good shepherd king would use to ward off enemies and scavengers. Except in this psalm, this rod that he mentions in Psalm 2 is one made of iron. And with this rod of iron, with this raw iron scepter, the Son of God, when the time of judgment comes, will shatter the nations like earthenware or dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's, it's like a snowball hitting a brick wall. Just sort of poof, it just goes away. In this way, it says, the ungodly will be shattered. The the ungodly will be pulverized. The ungodly will be scattered. Therefore, let there be no doubt in your mind. Christ is furnished with power by which to reign even over those who loathe His authority and those who refuse to obey Him. Just a couple of samples of this authority and this power. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, the Apostle John speaking of the time near the end of the Great Tribulation when the kings of the earth will gather to oppose Christ at the battle of Armageddon says this, And I saw heaven, John says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now I understand that to some, this language is a little offensive. To, to, to many people, this, this kind of language is, we just say, for some it's just flat out, it's just unfamiliar. The Lord laughing? The Lord scoffing? His chosen king breaking and shattering and striking down not just things, but people. In fact, this may seem strange to some of you, especially if you receive your theology from Cracker Barrel, where you, you, you think that Jesus is some sort of down-home softy, some sort of meek and mild. I mean, you read these passages and it's like, it, 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 that's about Christ? Is that speaking of Jesus? Well, if you have that, that picture in your mind that Jesus wouldn't do such things, then you really need to grasp the reality of Psalm 2. You need to welcome the message of Psalm 2. You need to smash that idol. If you have that image of Jesus in your mind, that, that idol needs to come down. Because Jesus is the anointed one of verse 2. He is the king of verse 6. He is the son of verse 7. He is the one who presently reigns from heaven. And he is the one who will return to earth, who will occupy the throne of David in Jerusalem and establish his millennial kingdom. This is where history is going. God the Father has appointed his king. This king, his son, will reign with certainty and absolute power, shattering the opposition. Well, let's look finally in these last three verses, verses 10 to 12, at the Spirit's appeal. And what I mean by this is the Holy Spirit's appeal through the author David. And this, to me, is really the most astonishing part of this psalm. It's an amazing display of God's mercy and grace. In essence, it, it, is, a, it is a merciful plea. It, it is a plea for our intellects and for the intellects of these kings and these rulers and these pagan nations. He says, now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Or be wise in your perception and in your assessment. He says, take warning, O judges of the earth. Literally, allow yourselves to be corrected. 
especially in the way that you think. It's a plea for their will. He says in verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence. The ESV says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So according to David, there is both real fear and real joy. There is real fear because there is real danger. Hebrews 12, 29 does say, our God is a consuming fire. But this fear does not rob us of joy because it drives us to Christ where there is safety. It's also a plea for their affections. Verse 12, he says, do homage to the Son. Literally, kiss the Son. See, our our God is a jealous God. And both Yahweh and His Son, both of them, their, their anger is kindled when the affection designed for them is given to another. So he says, kiss the son. And this is not a Judas kiss. This is a kiss of adoration. This is a, a, the, a kiss of surrender, of someone who's been conquered by another. It speaks of subjection, of intimacy, and reconciliation. To summarize, God calls the unbelieving world to a glad submission to experience the joy of fearing Him. Now, what's the alternative? Verse 12 says, Do homage to the Son that He not become angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. Meaning that even though Exodus 34, 6 states that God is compassionate and God is gracious and slow to anger, His wrath can break out suddenly. So, so, so the psalmist is simply saying, don't presume upon God's patience. If you trifle with Him and His patience, it may suddenly run out and you will be overtaken in wrath. The psalmist ends with this phrase, How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Seek refuge in Him. The only safe place from the wrath of God is in God. Everywhere outside of His care is dangerous. He is the only shelter from His own judgment. The reality is most people seek refuge in anything other than God. They seek refuge in drugs, video games, the busyness of life, activities, relationships, food, their career. But all of these are inadequate forms of shelter. And not only that, but most people simply ignore the warning that the storm of God's judgment is coming. David would say, don't make that mistake. This is an urgent summons to to humility. It is not a suggestion. It is an ultimatum. To refuse, to, to decline is to disobey. And to disobey brings wrath. To rejoice with fear 
to worship the Son, to take refuge in Him, is to bring blessing. It really is an amazing conclusion to the psalm that those who raged against God are now offered blessing in exchange for trust. The mutiny of mankind is met with the mercy of the Savior King. And it is an indiscriminate call of mercy. It is a gracious warning to the proud not to harden themselves in their foolishness and in their indifference, nor to flatter themselves and to presume upon the patience of God with the hope of escaping unpunished. And listen, it may appear sometimes that Jesus is not in control of the people, or he is not in control of the places or the things and the events of your life. But let me assure you, he is and he always will be. You cannot impeach him. He is not going to resign. Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords. If you're here tonight and you're saved, my prayer is that the truth of this psalm will deepen your appreciation for God's holiness and His mercy. It'll strengthen your faith. It'll invoke greater humility in your life and greater resignation and surrender and obedience. And that it will provide for some of you who have had a tumultuous week, it'll provide a resting place for your heart. If you're here tonight and you're spiritually lost, you've never turned from your sins and never transferred your reliance off of yourself and onto Jesus, God has given you this opportunity. Everything hinges on your response to King Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is God's appointed king. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord. And he is the only safe shelter from judgment. This is the gospel that we believe and that we carry to the world. Christ will either be your greatest treasure or he will be your enemy. Lay down your arms and surrender to him. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we thank you for this word of challenge from from Psalm 2, this word of exhortation this plea, this appeal, this word of encouragement. Father, we are grateful tonight, Lord, for this wonderful promise that blessed are those who take refuge in Christ. Lord, I pray that as we go out this week, Lord, to those various stations of life that you've called us to, that, Lord, this truth, this reality, this fact that our God reigns will embolden us in our witness, would give us great joy and lead us, Lord, to walk in the fear of the Lord. Lord, would you embolden us this week to be faithful witnesses for you? And, Lord, in every way, in every heart of our lives, Lord, may we surrender to your 
lordship. Lord, may we be faithful followers of you and of Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen.